This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. There's a, a new wave of medicines that are coming, ones that are going to be based off of living drugs, living medicines. These living cellular medicines are going to really change the ways in which we treat disease, their potential for cures. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. We call it Lama for short. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, this is another episode from TED Med, the annual conference focusing on health and medicine. Now, what is synthetic biology and how could it help us live longer, healthier lives? What if one day we could swallow a tiny capsule packed with genetically engineered living cells, lots of electronics to help identify looming health issues before they actually cause any problems? What if the same Technology could be used as a cure for some conditions uh, to help us uh, perhaps get rid of diseased cells. It is all a little mind-boggling, but my guest today is one of the world's leading experts and is here hopefully to help us understand this. Considered one of the founding fathers of synthetic biology, Tim Liu is a member of the Synthetic Biology Group at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and has co-founded several startups focused on creating new diagnostic and therapeutic technologies. Tim, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. Good to see you here uh, out in the California desert. You're based most of the time on the East Coast in Boston. I am, yeah. I have a lab there at MIT. We've been working in synthetic biology for about eight years at MIT and almost two decades over my career now. And just working at MIT, a lot of people I've spoken to who work there often just talk about what a privilege it is to be there and to be surrounded by those resources. Yeah, definitely. I think it's mostly about the people that we get to come in contact with, the students there, um, the, the postdocs, the researchers. It's an amazing environment. I mean, the, the sort of work that we do really requires interdisciplinary work. So we have people in our lab who are biologists, people who are coming from the medical side of things, and then people who are essentially engineers who've never touched biology before and sort of cramming them together uh, along the mission of sort of programming biology has been really fun. Well, this is actually what fascinates me about you and, and others that are doing similar work, that your main areas of expertise are computer programming, electrical engineering, microbiology, quite different disciplines. Yes. Uh, well, you know, the story behind it is basically that, you know, I was, I, I was a computer scientist by training, uh, programmed computers, uh, was, was for, uh, for most of my career as a, as a college student, you know, started working in that area a bit. But I wanted to really figure out, you know, could we take the same concepts that we use to program computers and actually start doing them in living cells? Um, and so that's what really drove me to change really everything that I do from programming electrical computers to programming biological computers. I ended up doing a, a graduate PhD work in MD, MD in that area and decided to really dive in and, and try to get into that. Um, and the reason for me doing it is ultimately that we want to try to you know, reimagine the ways we can use life to, to, to do things like make materials, to diagnose disease, to treat disease eventually. And, um, you know, we think that biology is a really powerful substrate for doing that sort of thing. So essentially using the principles of, of engineering and, and computing to tweak the human body. Yeah, that's the goal here. Um, you know, I think over 
the last you know, 40 or 50 years, we've done a lot of amazing work in molecular biology, really figuring out how compo- individual components inside of cells work. Now I think it's the time where we can think about programming it, you know, taking that information, how to put together components, put together what we call gene circuits to allow us to control what these cells are doing to a greater degree. And that's really what we're focused on now. So could you give me, I mentioned synthetic biology, give me yeah. a, a kind of a general definition of, of what that means. I know we, we've probably just encompassed, I think, what it involves and what goes into it. But yeah. how, how do you see it? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people have different definitions of what they view as synthetic biology. I really view it as a the next generation of genetic engineering. You know, if you think about the first wave of products that came through genetic engineering, gave us the ability to make things like insulin, make, gave us the ability to make antibodies. And these drugs eventually came out from the ability to program recombinant DNA. Um, but all these products initially were really focused on, you know, let's say a single gene. You know, we engineer bacteria just to make insulin. Um, what's different about synthetic biology today is we can actually start thinking about putting more complex programs together, uh, multiple genes together, and and by doing that, create more complex and sophisticated behaviors, ones that allow cells to do things like do math, um, cells that can have memory, and by doing that, um, really reimagine the ways in which we use cells as diagnostics and therapies. So I guess in a succinct way, I think synthetic biology is really about reprogramming life and doing it in a way that goes beyond um, you know, uh, simple control. It's really about sophistication and, and how we can um, you know, design life in a way that you know, it naturally is operating already, but we can put it under our control. You mentioned cells that can do math. Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> so one of the first things we did uh, back in 2009 was actually program cells that could count. Um, they can count to three, for example. Um, so essentially the way that works is we design a piece of DNA. Um, we insert that into the cell and it gives the cell this new functionality. Uh, so if you think about it, when if you want to try to make something that counts to three, you need something that sort of has a sense of what happened in the past. Like you need to know, you know, when I get to two, it's because I already counted one. If I get to three, I already counted to two. So we had to build something called a little memory device. And then we have to stack many of these memory devices together. Conceptually, it's very similar to, you know, stacking up dominoes in a chain. So imagine you have three dominoes that you stack uh, side by side, and you knock one over, and then you knock another one over, and you knock another one over. That's basically counting to three. Um, and we can do that uh, in DNA now, uh, and we basically do that by using a class of proteins called recombinases, which basically flip pieces of DNA sequentially. So it's very similar to that domino concept. And so what would the biological benefit be to a human body of, of that functionality? Yeah, so I think in general, um, there are things we'd like to be able to understand that require memory or the ability to actually track events. So for example... You know, development of cancer is not just like a single thing that happens at one moment. It's likely to be an accumulation of events that happen over time. So if we want to try to, number one, study that, um, it's very useful to have tools that allow us to actually control timing, right? So if I want to study, you know, what's the relationship between cancer gene A, B, and C? Does it matter if A happens before B happens before C? Or maybe the mutations to these happen in a different order, B, A, C, C, A, B, whatever. I need to be able to control that. Secondly, if I want to detect uh, things in the body that are happening, you know, it's useful to be able to have circuits like this that can say, you know, number one, oh, if I have a cell that's floating throughout the body, number one, it figures out, okay, I'm in the liver, if I'm going for liver cancer. So you have a cell that knows that. And then number two says, okay, now that I'm in the liver, I should be looking for cancer. So those are like events that are happening um, that need to happen in a sequential order and be able to program circuits that can 
take account of that are, are potentially useful for therapeutic applications. So essentially what you're doing is you're devising techniques that can, into two broad areas, prevention and treatment of That's disease. Right. Prevention yep. of disease and treatment of disease if we can't prevent it and it happens and takes us by surprise and clearly that's going to continue for some sure. time until we can prevent everything. <laughs> but um, so there are essentially two major groups here. And I mentioned in the intro this concept of, of swallowing a capsule. Yep. Now, do you envision a future perhaps where we'll all be swallowing that little capsule to try to prevent the great swathe of diseases that can yeah. potentially come along and surprise us? I certainly hope so. I think one of the big challenges in, in, in the field of medicine is we often try to treat disease once they've surpassed a certain point. Like, you know, so we treat cancer after we've detected it. But it would have been much easier if we had detected early signs of that and, and went after it. Similarly for diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, we treat those once people have flared and they get really serious, we try to knock down the immune system at that point, which really powerful drugs. So I think in general, as a principle, it would be very useful to be able to detect early signs of disease. But one of the challenges with that is we don't have good ways of seeing what's going on in our bodies. Um, a lot of the techniques we use either require very large machines or require physical um, procedures where people stick cameras in our bodies, for example. So we like to try to develop ways that are more non-invasive, in a sense. Uh, and I think one of the ways in which you do this um, is by using living cells to try to use service diagnostics. Living cells are naturally in our bodies anyways. They're interfacing with our bodies in all sorts of ways. So if we can just repurpose them to tell us, hey, you know, I sensed an early sign of, of cancer here, early signs of inflammation, and give you at least a warning signal. Our hope is that we can develop some you know, early preventative detection strategies using that approach. And presumably less of a chance of rejection because you're not necessarily putting a foreign body into the, yeah. into the human body. Yeah, it's our hope. So a lot of the work that we do, for example, is around engineering the human microbiome. Um, and so there are tons of bacteria that live inside of us, you know, um, at least as many human cells, uh, at least as many, as many bacteria live in us as there are human cells, and, and by some accounts, even 10 times more. Um, so oftentimes we take those same bacteria, ones that um, either naturally live in you or others that people eat con commonly take as probiotics or eat as yogurt, so they're known to be safe. And we try to use those as, as the host rather than try to introduce something completely foreign into the body. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or go search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. The human biome you, you mentioned, is it, to my reading of the literature, it's hugely underestimated in terms it is, of its yeah. importance and significance to our everyday lives? I think this is one of the really amazing fields um, that have really you know, blossomed since the Human Genome Project. And we've developed methods now to really be able to sequence and understand what all the bacteria that are inside of us. I think people have long known that bacteria live in us, but they didn't really know what they were doing. And they were somewhat estimated to be like not really that important to us. But it's becoming super clear now that the bacteria that live in us really play a major role in, you know, human development, both healthy and disease. Um, and so we're only just starting to gain insights into like what the bacteria does. And in some cases, you know, people, you know, a lot of people in the field now think that, you know, we're basically like vessels for these bacteria rather than the other way around. They really do impact us in a lot of different ways. And, and you know, with modern medicine and modern diet, we're actually changing the microbiome in pretty profound ways as well. So you've mentioned cancer. Based on the work that you're currently doing, are there conditions that you're focusing on 
primarily at the moment yeah. everyone thinks of cancer as one of the big killers obviously heart disease sure. as well but, but what are you looking at um, so you know obviously there's a lot of different types of cancers uh, the work that we've done the most in the lab is around ovarian um, it's a huge area of unmet need it doesn't respond particularly well to some of the new immunotherapy drugs that are out there and to us it's a uh, it's an area that um, we've made quite a bit of progress on over the last few years trying to develop you know therapies that are smart can detect ovarian cancer and then respond by uh, treating it in, in more more powerful ways we do have grants in the lab focused on others like you know prostate lung and and, and others that we're continuing to push forward on and I think the principle is quite generalizable but we have to pick one thing to to start with as you know um, sort of developing a new technology and then pushing that into the human clinical use is is a, is a big concerted investment so we've decided to hone in on ovarian as the first first indication and for this kind of science how how easy is it to get funds? Is there a yeah, is there a will in terms of those people that are in a position to provide you with the the backing that you, you know, need? No, I think cancer funding is certainly always going to be robust in a sense, but there's also a lot of people working in the area and a lot of really clever new approaches to go after it. So there's certainly competition in the field for uh, non synthetic biology strategies to go after cancer that you know we need to prove that to the world that we're at least as good as or, or certainly much better at um, is our hope. Um, so. You know, I, I won't sit here and say that funding is easy, but I think it's it's an area that we continue to need investment on. Um, synthetic biology has a long ways to go before it realizes its full potential, and more investment will be needed to really get it there. And what about, and I almost feel as if I should ask you this, uh, synthetic, just the word synthetic to a lot of people is <laughs> yeah. a little scary. That it's, it's sure. not, it, in, in other words, it says not real or yeah. not human. Yeah. And that makes some people just nervous yeah, that you're you know, tinkering with the human body in this way. <laughs> I didn't coin the term. It's something that um, I actually don't know the, the original origins and why it sort of took off. It's sort of the common term that people use to refer to the field. I really think of it more as programming biology in a way. So um, we're not creating, we're oftentimes not creating completely new biology from scratch. There are people who are trying to do that, but most of the work in synthetic biology is really about rewiring what's there and putting things together in a way where we're using the same DNA, same RNA, same proteins, but really just put many, making modifications to them and putting them together in a different way where the behavior changes. Um, so we really think about this as like, you know, redesigning or reprogramming what's already there. Um, there certainly are really cool, amazing efforts out there on creating truly completely synthetic life where we're talking about, you know, playing with chemi chemistry that doesn't really exist in our bodies. And I think that's an amazing part of research, but that's really not what we're talking about in terms of the diagnostic therapeutics that are going into humans. So you're here at TED Med. Do you have a, um, and giving a talk, uh, as many people have this week, and oftentimes with a message that you, you want to get out to the like-minded community, certainly at a kind of <laughs> event like this, but obviously much broader when videos are shown around the world. Sure. Do, do you have a, a message? What is it that you would like people to know, really know, yeah. about what you do? I think what I want to tell people is that there's a, a new wave of medicines that are coming, ones that are going to be based off of living drugs, living medicines. These living cellular medicines are going to really change the ways in which we treat disease. There are potential for cures. There's going to be potential for much more precise type therapies, and that's really going to change both the ways in which we think about treating disease. Uh, but there will be implications on how we, you know, society also, um, you know, interfaces with these sort of medicines. It's not necessarily going to be one drug that we make that's going to satisfy, you know, a million people. It might be one drug for, for one person. Um, so I think 
we're going to really have to start thinking about overall how we think about these sort of medicines, how we're going to pay for them, how we're going to deliver them, how we're going to use them, and, and perhaps even how doctors are even trained to think about applying these in the clinic. Uh, and longer term, obviously, the consequences uh, based on successful work by yourself and, and others for our longevity, and I'm not talking extreme longevity yep. here, but the consequences for extending health span, just the number of years that we live healthy and a, a vital and agile and able to do the things that we want to do. It all comes down to prevention yes. and, and delaying that time when those chronic diseases do eventually hit, right. which I think being realistic, they still probably will get us, but it, we might be 90 or 100 right. as opposed to 75 or 85. That is the goal. And we're going to have to adapt, aren't we, just yes. to that scenario? I think so. Yeah. You know, I think you know, you, I think we're going to see a lot. We're certainly seeing a lot of progress already in cancer and with continued improvements there. I'm pretty confident we're going to continue to push out, you know, that um, I don't know how you term it, but the, the healthy lifespan. Um, and we're going to be able to extend sort of life in that way, healthy life in that way. Mm. Um, health span. Health span, I guess. What I say, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, there are other diseases that we certainly need to tackle if we're going to try to we're going to start coming up against, you know, cancer is a major killer. If you sort of help start delaying when cancer really makes an impact on people, then other things are going to be continually important, right? Certainly diseases of the brain are a big black box at this point. Um, and I think we're going to need a lot more concerted effort to really understand what's going on up there as well as to actually start treating it in new ways. Um, that's an area where I think a lot of effort is going to be needed. You know, in areas like cardiovascular, I think we've done a good job in developed countries on extending the, the types of therapies and, and early detection strategies for that. Um, but heart disease, especially with, you know, Western lifestyles, is something that's not going away. And so I think new strategies are going to be needed there to really extend, you know, healthy health span um, in, the, in that particular case as well. You, yeah, interesting point that you raise about Western lifestyles and Western diets. That yeah. You always, I suppose, uh, unless things dramatically change, you're still <laughs> going to be battling against that yes. that factor yep. that the people don't necessarily do the right things to encourage that that health span scenario yep. but um at, at least what you're doing is i suppose giving us hope that those big issues yep. the, the cancers brain conditions dementia that um are really a scourge on society at the moment that, that there is hope yeah i do i i do have hope um and the reason i do have hope about this is Number one, we've gained a lot more insights into why these diseases happen in the first place with, you know, the Human Genome Project and a lot of the work on the scientific side. And now with this new set of tools where we're not relying on, you know, old school type drugs, you know, whether it's just simple small molecule drugs like aspirin or, you know, single targeted drugs. And we can start really programming therapies that are matching the complexity of these diseases. Um, I do have hope that we're going to be able to address these one day. It, I, I think it's unlikely that there's going to be a magical single magic bullet that's going to treat these. And so we're naturally going to need combination therapies, ones that are more localized or targeted or controllable. And that's really what um, you know, programming biology or synthetic biology tries to bring to the table. And I'm curious in your own life, and I ask this of most people, based on your work, based on what you understand about the science, how do you live your life, perhaps with your <laughs> longevity in mind? That's a good question. Yeah, I guess um, it depends <laughs> uh, whether you actually practice what you preach. Well, I, I often find that people don't. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, you know, I, um, I do try to make a concerted effort to improve diet and exercise, but it's not always easy to do that, certainly. 
you know, I do, I am pretty uh, vigilant about sort of trying to do all the early detection that you can, because I do think that, as you mentioned, is really an important part of trying to stay healthy. So that means going perhaps beyond what, you know, a, a typical screen might, might, you might do in a, in a, in a general practitioner's office. But, um, you know, if, if you can avail yourselves of additional, whether it's, you know, buying devices that you can use to monitor your health or, or doing scans and things like that, as long as they're not, you know, inducing too much radiation to the bodies, it's, I think it's worth Try to keep an eye on that. Uh-huh. And I see these days a lot of companies advertising just that service, this kind yeah. of precision medicine, the preventative medicine. Um, have you ever done anything like that? Yeah, I have. I mean, I've done, uh, 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 I don't know exactly which company is referring to, but I've, I've done, um, you know, some of the some of those works. You know, you oftentimes come out of it, especially when you're healthy, you oftentimes kind of wondering like, well, was that really worth spending the money on? But um, I think in the in the case of an, in, and there's always a risk, I think, from a public health perspective of what do you do with the incidental findings? So there are a lot of findings that do come out of those sort of things that, you know, really don't mean anything. And mm. if you the, the false negatives. They're false negatives uh, or false positives. And I guess yeah, yeah. if you're... Um, if you're if you're not necessarily really deeply attuned to what the results mean, you can very easily get wor- very worried about things that you know may not be an issue. So I understand at a public health level, it may not be the ideal solution. It's probably not cost effective. But on a personal level, if you're willing to accept that, you know, you have to interpret this information. Then I think it's a personal decision to try to try to take. Mm. And do you and we talk a lot about longevity and, and health as I've mentioned. Do you think about your own longevity? Do you have a a vision in your mind about what it's going to be like to get old and how you can live your life accordingly? That's a good question. Yeah. I would say certainly since I've had kids, I've thought about it a lot more um, because I don't want to be a burden on them. So I think that's really where I started changing the way I was thinking. I think pre-kids, it was certainly quite different. (laughs) I find that so many times that uh, kids, the word kids, children, the implications for you and for them as you get older are are pretty much number one on the list for most people, which is interesting. And I guess in thinking about my own, my own family history, I think certainly we've had history of, of cancer in the family. I, I am pretty confident that over the next 10, 15 years, we're going to have a pretty good handle on trying to tackle some of these difficult cancers. I think so much work is going to this area right now. Um, I'm pretty excited about what's going to happen there. You know, I think for myself, there's also a history of, you know, diabetes in the family. And there's frankly not as much work being done there in terms of how to cure that disease as well as, you know, uh, fortunately, I think in the family hasn't been as much, you know, a brain disease. Um, but, you know, I think if we continue to push your lifespan out, then that, that certainly will become a problem at some point. So for me, it's at this point, um, you know, sort of just envisioning what will happen if I go away and if the kids are being well taken care of and trying to make sure that is delayed as far as possible. Um, but also thinking about, you know, really trying to change things like diet and exercise, because that's, you know, something I know that is in the family that we need to try to, you know, try to push out as long as we can. Yeah. yeah. As you uh, return to your laboratory, what is next on the agenda for you? What's the next big project? Yeah, you know, I think in addition to sort of all the work we're doing on cancer, we do have a lot of interest in trying to push these technologies into the brain. Um, I think that's a huge frontier of future research. Um, it's where synthetic biology does offer a lot, at least on the basic research side of things, you know, in terms of building sensors, you know, memory devices that are in the brain that let us study why brain diseases develop in the first place. Now, part of the big problem with this field right now is we just don't have good ways of seeing what's going on in there. And so we rely on scans or, you know, probes and things like that that we put in there. But I think genetic tools that really sit inside the brain and can tell you what sort of biological signals are turning on or off over time can be very powerful there. Um, So So maybe you say a memory device, something that can give us information about how the brain is changing let's say as something like alzheimer's That's progresses right. exactly. over the years and decades because yes. clearly there is it's a slow progression it's a slow progression it? and so even in the mouse models it's not easy to do this if you have a mouse model of a disease <clears throat> 
you know, oftentimes what people do is they'll have a cohort of these mice and they'll, you know, kill, kill a segment of them at different time points and open them up and see what happens. Um, that just makes these experiments more difficult to do. So if we could have, like you said, little memory circuits inside of each cell that actually records what's happening to those cells over time as the disease develops, you know, that I think on its own would be very powerful. Uh, and then certainly one day if we could do that in humans and really understand the human disease, that would be, uh, you know, really transformative for the field as well. And obviously at this stage, a lot of your work has to be with, with animals. It is at this point. Yeah. So that's always, a, I think that is one of the big bottlenecks for the field right now is trying to develop better models for human disease. Um, and there are you know, some pretty clever efforts going on out there. Um, on one hand, trying to develop, you know, organ on a chip type strategy. So try to build a little mini brain or build a mini heart on a chip that's made out of human cells rather than relying on the mice. Or, or, or monkeys to try to do that sort of study. But I think, you know, animal modeling is going to be sort of a core component of, of, of disease biology, in the, you know, for the foreseeable future, just because there's not really much better alternatives out there um, other than experimenting in humans, which we know you're not going to do yeah. uh, to, to a large extent. It's an exciting field that you work in and clearly growing rapidly. Yeah, it's definitely boomed over the last uh, 15 years at all levels. I mean, you've, you've seen, you know, high school students, college students really diving into it. There's a competition we hold at MIT called iGEM uh, that happens every year. It's called the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. Uh, it's where you know college students and now high school students get together and present um, what they've been working on over the last year. And you hear the, really the craziest ideas um, out there that are ranging from you know using bacteria to clean up oil spills to using bacteria to make you know new packaging materials to using bacteria to try to treat you know some of the hardest diseases. So it's really exciting that this is happening. I think there's going to be continued democratization of this ability to modify and, and manipulate biology, and it's going to really lead to an explosion of things that people want to do with technology. If anyone wants to follow your work, what's the best way? Uh, the best way to follow our work would be to simply go to our website. Um, it's uh, lugroup.org, L-U-G-R-O-U-P.org. Um, we have all our papers up there as well as people in our lab who are doing the hard work. It's good stuff. I'm going to follow it with great interest. Timothy Lou, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I will, of course, put those details in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. You can go to our website, which is llamapodcast.com. That's Live Long and Master Aging Podcast, double L-A-M-A podcast.com. Follow us in social media at Llama Podcast. Just want to thank everyone at Ted Med for helping with this episode. And thank you for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.